Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Happy Horns and Hump Day, Pagans Tonight Radio listeners. You are tuned into Great Right Radio. So glad that you're joining us on your Wednesday night, making the middle of the week go by a little bit faster and bringing the weekend up a little bit sooner. You're listening to All Acts of Love and Pleasure, the show where we talk about sex, sexuality, LGBT issues, relationship issues, and more, all from a pagan perspective. I am Dr. Susan. And I am Michael Graywolf. And again, we're so glad that you are with us. We'd love to have you be part of the show. You can do that by hanging out in the chat room here at PaganTonight.com. That's booting up as we speak. You can call in in the U.S. at area code 347-308-8222. You can drop us an email at actsofloveandpleasure at gmail.com. And you can find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash allactslove. Our Twitter feed is a little quiet tonight, but maybe if you tag us, we'll jump in and talk. You can find us at Love and Pleasure, and that's Love, L-U-V, and Pleasure. And we do post all kinds of stuff to the Facebook, both during the show and immediately after, any books or events or uh, other kind of news items that we mention. If you want to spend some time looking at those or mark your calendar afterwards, you can go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash allxlove, and you'll find all those good links. So we're kicking off October, which is a, a kind of a, a, triple th- a triple threat for <laughs> us here at All Acts of Love and Pleasure. It is, of course, it's Samhain month. It is also Halloween month, so all those fun things. And it's also... LGBT History Month in the U.S., so we're going to be looking at some of the intersections of those three things for our shows this month. Before we dive in, what's going on, Michael Graywolf? Oh, goodness. Um, not, well, I'm trying to think. <laughs> not, not a whole lot. I am just, I'm getting myself ready because I'm going on a trip in a couple of weeks, um, I am going back up to Illinois for about a week, yeah, roughly a week, uh, for my for my boyfriend's wedding, and I'm really excited about it, and yeah, I'm just I'm excited to be able to spend a week with my boyfriend and yeah. soon to be husband. That's so good. yeah. Well, and, and you I mean, are uh, taking part in those that that ceremony, right? Yes, I am. I'm work. I'm working feverishly on uh, my part of it. Um, so I know a few people. Uh, people I've talked to in the past have always said that they are going to do like you know people do multiple hand fastings or multiple wedding ceremonies, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Especially if mm-hmm. you're gay awesome. or pagan. And they're doing they're doing one where it's going to be a, a hand fasting, which I will be um, doing for them. And then they're going to have an, another ceremony, which will be the legal ceremony for them to be married. And that's going to involve sure. more of their family and stuff. So for sure, for sure. And is that all happening while you're up there? Yeah. Yeah, it's oh, all happening all about there. Fasting and do their wedding later, so uh, yeah, excellent. That's that's going to be a whole lot of. Uh, it's well, weddings are always fun, but it's also they're also exhausting. So yes. that will be a whole a whole lot of a whole lot. And a friend of mine pointed out to me like last week when we were watching some Doctor Who online. He said, "So wait, is this the first time you're meeting all of his?" family, and I was like, oh, fuck, I am. Oh, I said, man. I, 
I really am. I am. This will be my first meeting of all of his family. And that includes his twin sister, his younger sister, you know, both sets of parents. I'm like, oh, oh, I need to go hit the gym some more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, 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 and I'm, because I'm, I'm nosy, I'm going to ask, do they know about their relationship arrangement? Or are you just coming I think in terms of the family, the siblings in terms of the guys that are good friends? The siblings Pardon? know. The, his, okay. his, my uh, my boyfriend's siblings know. Uh, the parents, you know, it's kind of kind of hard to explain it to some of the older generation. So I don't be, I don't believe they know anything about you know all of this. So okay, the but yeah, his uh, his, his sisters know, so they're it's gonna be fine. That's a lot. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I'm I'm actually I'm I'm going by train, so I'm looking forward to the train ride, especially since yeah. I'll be taking my laptop with me this time, and I can actually like watch movies. <laughs> nice. I won't be going. I won't be going crazy, just you know, trying to get reception on my phone. <laughs> Well, that should be a, a pretty trip at this time of year, too. Yes. <laughs> you know, it, it, it sucks that um, I kind of wish I was going to be up there longer because I'd love to see a lot of my friends who live in the yeah. area or you know, are fairly close to Champaign. Because yeah. I have friends yeah. that live, like, two hours, you know, going north or going south. I'm like, ugh, I wish I could see them, but I'm more than satisfied just seeing my boyfriend. Right, right. No, I hear that. When I uh, go back home, there's always people that I wish I could see, and I just never have enough time. Or when I go to Austin or when I go to Houston, um, and mm-hmm. those aren't nearly as, as far of a, uh, a drive, as far of a trip as Champaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But, but how, how have you been, Dr. Susan? You know, it's been uh, kind of a busy couple of weeks. I... I think I had just started the last time I uh, was getting ready to start. Last time uh, we did a show, uh, a contract job doing proofreading for um, the corporate headquarters of, of the retailer here in mm-hmm. Irving. So I've been back on the, you know, 9 to 5.30, Monday through Friday grind. Um, it's been kind of a while since I did that. Because <laughs> even my last, the full-time job I worked four days on and then had my Fridays off. And then of course all summer I worked for myself. So I've been adjusting to that, but I like it. Um, my, you know, my original contract's almost over. So we're going to see if they're going to renew it or if I'm going to be uh, back on the hustle. So I've been kind of adjusting uh, to being out of the house most of the day mm-hmm. and then having projects and things to work on at night. So that's been, kind of a trip um mm-hmm. got an october and a november that are full of travel and events so kind yes. of figuring out how that's all going to work um got going to reclaiming collective witch camp uh tejas witch camp in at the end of october right the weekend before Halloween. so i'm getting ready for that and then in november i am headed to belgium for four days uh, to present at a conference so that's I'm kind of looking at my calendar and kind of going, oh my goodness! And then the next thing you know, it's the old, <laughs> and the next thing you know, it's the oh new God. year. So I'm, I'm also cramming in all kinds of vending at the time and got a bunch of new products coming out. So it was a kind of a weird thing where everything all happened at once after everything being stymied for a while. So it's uh, it's kind of an embarrassment of blessing <laughs> mm-hmm. at the moment. Uh, you know, I feel like I got back from vacation up in the Black Hills and just kind of hit the ground running. But uh, I, you know, I can't complain. I can't complain. Um, it's it's the blessing to have as many things that I'm really interested in doing on my plate. Is I could probably use about 12 more hours in the day. But <laughs> that's okay. I am told that I have a tendency to overcommit myself. I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> but. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to trying to do all that and keep you know keep the house clean and 
you know, keep the laundry done and all that because uh, my partner's been uh, you know, works full time and is going to school. And for the month of September, had a speech class that was every Saturday and Sunday from nine to four. So we also mm-hmm. lost our weekend time together. That's done now, uh, but the weekend was when a lot of the things that kind of ran our household that we needed to do together got done. And so it's uh, the uh, the standard of housekeeping around here is, is a lot lower than either of us would like at the moment. Mm-hmm. So we'll be doing <laughs> doing with that. Um, and of course, I've been kind of keeping my head above water with all the stuff with the Kavanaugh hearings and the uh, steady deluge of trauma coming mm-hmm. at all of us. Uh, which, you know, those who know my priestess work know that I work with a lot of survivors and I'm a survivor myself. And it has been a rough 10 days to to be in that world. It has been a rough 10 days. So looking forward to some, like, happy, witchy time with some friends soon and uh, you know, not sort of waking up every morning to look and see if the world is completely on fire or not. <laughs> We have some time. We have, well, speaking of which, the deadlines in most states for registering to vote that don't have same-day registration are coming up. Please make sure that you're registered to vote. Texans, I'm talking to you. You had to be registered by the 9th. Early voting starts the 22nd. Find out where all this happens and when all this happens in your state. Go to the League of Women Voters website. They are nonpartisan figure out what you need to do, and if you are somebody who is eligible to vote and does not have systemic obstacles that keep you from voting, such as yeah, crappy voter ID laws, get out there and get a ballot, because good Lord, uh, good lady, we have been, uh, it has been a rough, a rough two years, y'all. Let's see if we can make it a little <sighs> bit better. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, been a, it's been a rough couple of years for queer folks. Um Queer folks and brown folks and non-Christian folks, and uh, it's been a it's been an adventure, which is why it's even more important to kind of honor our our history and all that good stuff, which is what we're going to dive into tonight. Uh, so October does mark uh, LGBT History Month, and uh, we had a very simple idea for what we wanted to do with this show. We said, what if we make a list of like the 25 most influential queer pagans. How hard can that be, right? <laughs> so, so Michael and I both put out to our respective social networks and with our own brain, or their own brainstorming, tried to come up with a list. And last check, do you have a sense of how many people we had on that list? I know it's more oh, than 25. God. feel like the last time I entered some names, it was maybe close to 30, but then we had some people drop some more names onto our lap. Yes. So. Yes. So, uh, and then, of course, it quickly goes down the rabbit hole. like, well, do you include people like Alistair Crowley, who weren't really pagan, but they were absolutely queer? Uh, so what we thought would be kind of a light uh kind of like BuzzFeed-style listicles, actually turning into something of a research project. It's super interesting (laughs) uh, to look and see um, who gets brought up a lot and who gets brought up only seldom and uh, who weighs in. So we are actually going to refine that list. We're going to put a poll up on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash allxlove and put the uh, kind of most most frequently mentioned uh, folks in that list for our listeners to, to vote on, but there'll also be some space to fill in other folks because, you know, you know how it is. You get 12 pagans in a room, you get 13 opinions, right? The question mm-hmm. of what makes influence. Does it, you have to be famous to be influential. What do we do with, you know, queer pagan icons like Z Budapest who are Terrible human beings. You know, how do we recognize the influence of somebody's work while also recognizing the harm that they've done? And you know, then do we want to, you know, do we want to make sure that the list isn't really, really white? Because paganism is really, really white, but there are a lot of really uh, 
active and powerful queer pagans of color doing fabulous work out there that might not be getting noticed by the larger community because, mm. again, paganism is so white. So it, it's, it's going to be an adventure. I'm really curious to see what what people come up with. Uh, and if there are – if you want to just weigh in before I even get the poll up, absolutely drop us a, a message at actsloveandpleasure at gmail.com or send us a Facebook message, and we'll uh, see about getting your people on the poll. Um, and, of course, then that leads to, oh, well, what are the greatest books up? It, it's a huge rabbit hole, y'all. Um, we had no, I had no idea, although I should have if I knew my people, that uh, people were going to have you know, things I, to say. So wait, go, go ahead, Michael. Well, no, I was just going to say, and I, I haven't even looked back at, like, the, your, your post, because I know who commented <laughs> on my post. I haven't even right. gone to look back and see who's commented on yours. Like I'm, right. I'm like, oh gosh. Well, and I think that's going to be interesting because while we have a lot of overlap, you we also move in for giving the pun some pretty different circles in the community. Mm-hmm. So it will be really interesting to see where there's overlap and where there's complete divergence. Because I know we have mm-hmm. a lot of the same friends. Uh, and, you know, we do clearly do a lot of work within queer paganism, so we've got contacts there, but uh, it will be really interesting to see sort of what what shows up and uh, who gets mentioned and who doesn't and uh, how we sort of start to think about how that, that list comes together. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure that you know, our list would come together the way differently than somebody else's would, so... It'll be kind of a fun project. That'll be our our, our Pride Month project uh, here at All Acts yes. Love and Pleasure. And you know, if people have uh, other lists or other uh, kind of aggregations, we'd love to see them. Drop us some links either through our Facebook page or through our email. Um, there's there's a lot sort of happening in queer paganism out there. Um, some of it really high profile, some of it not, and it's all worth looking at. That said, that was our idea for this week. So once we realized that that was a research project, we had to pivot a little bit to borrow a phrase from corporate America. Um, and instead, we thought we'd, we'd look at LGBT history, particularly in the U.S., written large. Um, and it's, you know, we often sort of think about Stonewall in 1969 being the birth of the modern gay rights movement, and in some ways it is, but there are important things that have happened on either side of that um, that put Stonewall into context that I think are a big deal, and especially now when we're seeing LGBT rights being really threatened in the U.S. Uh, starting, I think it was yesterday, the U.S. is no longer offering visas to the domestic partners um, of LGBT ambassadors and other uh, and if there is other officials, um, which is a huge departure from what we what we saw um, under mm-hmm. at least the second Obama administration, and what we've seen sort of uh, on the domestic front um, with state legislatures saying that they're going to revive things like uh, anti-marriage equality bills. Hello, thank you, Texas. Uh, the, you know, bathroom bills, all kinds of things that are. are you know, threatening what a lot of people considered kind of one and done, uh, you know, settled matters of law and, law and civil rights, it's worth looking back on where we're going and then or looking back on where we've been and then using that as a springboard for where we're going. And I think that there's um, a lot of overlap, you know, between queer pagans and the larger LGBT rights movement. Um, we're seeing a lot of folks who are very active in both, and, and in fact, that's really always been the case. But it's uh, going to be interesting to see how that goes forward um, with, in general, in the age of Trump, people using public, adjic- public acts of magic and ritual uh, to kind of resist this regime, um, how that's going to get brought 
into the queer community and how the queer community is going to bring what we have to offer into all of that. Um, feel our rainbow rage, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. There's there's a lot. We'll also be playing some of our favorite queer artists tonight uh, to give you give you a break from uh, our TED talk on <laughs> on queer history. Uh, but Michael, you dug up this uh, site called the Lavender Effect. They're at the lavendereffect.org. It looks like they maybe haven't updated recently, although they are uh, on Twitter and they are on Facebook, so they do have a presence. Uh, but you looked at what specifically was happened on today, October 3rd, in queer history. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about something that happened on October 3rd? Yeah. Okay. So I was looking at the site, and at first, like, it's, I want to say it's just every day it says something in it. LGBTQ history and it took me a little bit to get to the October 3rd one because there's no easy like oh go to this date button no I had to go see a few pages um, so on October 3rd in LGBTQ history see it says in 1961 in Hollywood motion picture production motion picture Producers and Distributors of America announced a revision of its production code. In keeping with the culture, the mores, and the values of our time, the revision advises homosexuality and other sexual aberrations may now be treated with care, discretion, and restraint. The new ruling paves the way for the release of films like The Children's Hour and Advice and Consent. But the uh, motion picture uh, producers and distributors later amended the revision to specify that sexual aberration may be suggested but not actually spelled out. And I think that's, we don't necessarily think of, of a, a, a change in the way that um, homosexuality in particular is is portrayed in the movies as happening sort of as early as 1961. Um but that was a kind of a contravening of what was called the uh, called the Hayes Code, uh, mm-hmm. that had very strict rules about the depiction of sexuality in movies. And it, it, you can totally go back and look at the Hayes Code and see the things that it forbid and the things that it led to. And there's actually some super interesting literature on how things that were required under the Hayes Code have become kind of tropes in queer cinema. Like, uh, especially we see characters. If, historically and even now, um, especially female characters that engage in same-sex relationships or same-sex activity, queer activity, that they, they're, they've kind of got to like be punished by the end of the story um, because it had to make this moral statement. Um, so it's interesting on the one hand to think that in 1961, the, the, uh, industry was saying, well, in keeping with the times, we have to keep, we have to treat these things differently. And then at the same time, we're still just now starting to see really accurate, uh, widespread popular depictions of LGBTQ people uh, in television and movies. And uh, still when they get it right, they get it really right. And when they get it wrong, they get it really wrong. Yeah. Also on October 3rd, uh, in, in 1973, so this is just the year before I was born, the health administrator, New York City health administrator, Howard Brown, publicly acknowledged homosexuality, his own homosexuality. And he said, quote, you get to a point where you want to leave a legacy. In a sense, this can help free the generation that comes after us from the dreadful agony of secrecy and the constant need to hide. And that's huge that somebody who is a public official like that comes out. Um, and that's only, you know, four years after Stonewall, uh, where there was still, you know, there was still incentive for public officials to stay in the closet. Um, but definitely then 
to come out publicly when you're in public life is absolutely huge. Um, and then there's, do you want to give us October 3rd, 1980? Yes. So on October 3rd in 1980, conservative activist and founding member of the American Conservative Union, Robert Bowman, is arrested in Washington, D.C. for soliciting sex from a 16-year-old boy. A long, Hmm. proud, conservative tradition. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, and it's, it's, it's people were, you know, other people might be like, why would you include that in queer history? Because it matters when you have yeah. uh, think about what was happening in 1980. Because I'm old enough to remember 1980. Uh, is you had the the moral majority, you had the backlash against feminism, you had the backlash against the sort of sexual freedom of the 70s. You had a, a real rise in. The, sort of the pro-life movement, the anti-abortion movement. There's a lot that's happening in 1980 America. That's it's starting to move the country back towards the right. And we, one of the sort of causes of conservative activists then, as it is now, is to uh, whip up paranoia about the gays and what we are doing to the culture. Um, but we do have this pattern of conservative activists, conservative legislators who make really uh, sweeping anti-gay statements also being caught in situations where they are soliciting same-sex or same-gender sexual activity and often with an added layer that they're doing it with a sex worker, um, which is not to shame sex workers, but they're also super anti-sex work, these conservatives, so it's, you know, they're really... uh, it's like a it's like a hypocrisy trifecta <laughs> when that happens, um, and that's you know if you think about 1980. You know we're still seeing the same issues right now. Three years later, the AFL-CIO, which is one of the largest labor unions in the country, votes to support gay rights legislation. Uh, that is something I did not know. Uh, you know we often think about the uh, labor unions. Uh, especially those of the blue collar trades as being, you know, predominantly working class white folks, even though the statistics don't really bear that out. That's the image that's there. And there's an idea that working class white folks are probably anti-gay rights. Um, And certainly the culture has moved since 1983, but that's a huge statement for the, you know, one of one of the, the first or the second largest union in the country in the U.S. to make a statement on gay rights legislation that early. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know about that until I looked at this website tonight. It was interesting. And then 1997, <laughs> we hope you a bit of Canadian gay history for you. Yes. In 1997, an Ontario court rules that the Canadian Provinces Insurance Act must include same-sex partners in its definition of spouse. And Canada, of course, has um, socialized medicine, so their their healthcare is paid for through their taxes, and so to uh, include same-sex partners even before marriage equality, which Canada had well before the U.S., uh, is a, a huge step, and it's something that you know. Well, our healthcare system is a mess anyway, um, but we could not do. And until 2015 uh, on most healthcare plans in the U.S. unless you were in a state that had uh, state-level protection. So that's also humongous to think about these sort of – we often think about the big moments in, in queer history as being things like Stonewall, being things like the Supreme Court decision on marriage. Where it's, it's these small things that – or seemingly small, kind of un, sometimes unnoticed legal things that are really the the bedrock of a movement for rights, and we and we just forget about that. I think even as somebody who's pretty attentive to the minutia of what it means to have equality, I absolutely forget uh, all the the little pieces that have to go into creating equality and that it won't be a 
there won't just be one big decision that comes along and lets these things happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got some more history for you? I want to play one of my favorite, uh, at least from my understanding of talking to her, she's one of my favorite queer, queer pagan uh, artists. I want to uh, leave you, I want to have a little ginger dust and I, and I, I feel like there are a lot of angry queers out here right now. And so I think we're going to have a little she-wolf and transition into some more, maybe some more distant history, move away from October 3rd, uh, post-1960 and look a little deeper.
amazing Ginger Doss with She Wolf. And we are talking about LGBT history and important moments in LGBT or queer history here on All Acts of Love and Pleasure tonight. If you are listening in and you think we've forgotten something or have something you wish we would talk talk about, go ahead and hit us up at Facebook. You can find us on, on Facebook at facebook.com slash allxlove. Or you can drop us an email at pleasure at gmail.com. Most of the time, I am glad that y'all can't hear what goes on in the green room during a music break, <laughs> but we were actually having a really good conversation in the green room. We've been looking at these sort of collected lists and timelines of queer history and important moments, and it's it's fascinating to look at the periods in time, especially most of these are very U.S.-centric, uh, which is, mm-hmm. is a failing, but... Uh, even just looking at the U.S. or the U.S. and Canada, seeing the the times in history when these things sort of cluster, and there's a lot of activity. Like if you look at from 1960 to 1970, there's a lot that happened. If you look at from 2008 to 2016, there's a lot that happened. And then there are the things really distant in the past that happen much earlier than you expect them to and the things that are so recent that you kind of like, well, really? Not until then? And it, it's sort of, it's one of those things that we think about, the way that we're taught history in the West is that it happens as kind of a straight line as a march towards product, progress, but looking at queer history and, and really civil rights history more broadly, if you look at civil rights history for African Americans, for uh, Hispanics and Latinos, for uh, people with disabilities, they actually, history actually kind of moves in a spiral where it kind of comes in on itself, and you can see it at these times where things bottleneck and they change. So it was it's a good chat. We're going to try and bring some of that out into the studio for you. <laughs> um, we are posting a bunch of links. There is this great article from Teen Vogue. Let me tell you, they are doing amazing work. I had Sassy Magazine when I was a, when I was a teenager, and that was a pretty progressive magazine. But Teen Vogue makes it, makes Sassy looks like Lay's Home Journal. They are doing some really hard hitting journalism, and they put up a piece. Uh, this is from their uh, June 2016 uh, 16 issue. It was their Pride Month, uh, which is different than LGBT History Month, uh, but their Pride Month list of uh, what they felt were the 18 sort of most iconic or salient moments in queer history uh, or the, the fight for queer equality again in, in the U S. So you want to, like, we, I mean, we can work down. There's some great stuff on here. Uh, was there something that really surprised you or that you didn't know about or that, that struck you from this list, Michael? Oh, to say I didn't know about some of the stuff, I feel like it would be a fabrication because I took I had I took so many classes in college that were about um, LGBTQ issues or mm-hmm. uh, civil rights uh, movements and whatnot. But it's all just kind of laying dormant for a while. And reading through some of this right. is like triggering. <laughs> it's triggering my uh, my memory on a few things. But I have to say the first one, like the first their first little blurb. Uh, I'm rather surprised because so far, far in the past, in my perspective, uh, in 1924, the first gay rights group is established. Uh, it says World War One veteran Henry Gerber founded the Society for Human Rights in Chicago. The group was the first homosexual rights group in America, and its newsletter. Friendship and Freedom was the United States' first recorded gay rights publication. 1924, right? And if you put it in context, of course, this was the Roaring Twenties. This was the time uh, that F. Scott Fitzgerald was writing about. Uh, It was the time between between World War One and the Depression. But often, I know certainly the um, version of twenties history I got coming up in school, they they kind of glossed over the roaring part of the 20s, and it's just this this space in between the wars, but there was a lot going on 
around sexual freedom in the 20s and, and the Society for Human Rights in Chicago. Uh, and they published that, that newsletter for a long time. And they were followed in relatively quick succession by a few other organizations that did really landmark work. So uh, I used to, when I taught queer studies, injured or queer studies, I used to play this timeline game with my students um, where we would build a timeline, usually from 1800 forward, and we'd have these moments in civil rights history and ask them to place them on the timeline, right? And absolutely, when I used to talk about the Society for Human Rights, I would ask, you know, when do you think the first gay rights organization in the U.S. was founded? And nobody ever put it earlier than 1950. <laughs> you know, most <laughs> people thought it was a post-1960 invention. Uh, and to find out that in 1924 we were having – that conversation I think is really interesting. Uh, the one that struck me, uh, and I don't know how I don't have this, didn't have this on my list, was that the first Supreme Court ruling in favor of gay rights in the U.S. was in 1958. And okay, maybe we can think about Henry Gerber and the Society for Human Rights in the Roaring Twenties, sure, but the 50s, when you know the uh, conservatives are running for. Election and they they want us to take us back to the America of the 50s. This is not what they are thinking about. Um, the U.S. Post Office refused to deliver America's first widely distributed pro-gay publication, uh, which had the lovely title of One, the Homosexual Magazine. And the case went to the Supreme Court, and the, the court ruled in favor of gay rights for the very first time. Uh, it ruled that the, that the post office could not refuse to deliver that publication. Um, which was huge. If you think about things like the Comstock Act and all kinds of laws that had been in place to control what was distributed through the U.S. Post Office to have the what is essentially the right to freedom of speech affirmed by the Supreme Court, have the, the Post Office ruled against by the Supreme Court and have the test case be a gay publication, I think, is, is something that I, I certainly didn't learn, and I will be adding that to my timeline game for the next time I play that. Cause that's, and it struck me, I mean, I was talking before the break about how it's often these, like, little things that start to chip away at inequality. It's these little mundane, seemingly mundane things, like the right to have your queer magazine delivered to your house. But it's those things as much as big things like marriage equality or the repealing of don't ask, don't tell that help to make equality. And conversely, when we start to chip away at things like the right to assemble, the right to have whatever you want delivered in your mail because it's nobody's business but your own, that is a real rolling back. Uh, that's, that's how the rolling back of civil rights starts, but it's people don't notice. So to sort of think about that case from both those standpoints, uh, I'm going to be sitting with that one for a while. I want to go read the decision now. Um, what about the Mattachines? I love me some Mattachines. Can you tell <laughs> us about what the Mattachines did in 1966? So in 1966, during a time when most bars refused to serve gay people, the Mattachine Society, one of the country's first gay rights organizations, staged a sip-in. You know, basically, uh, they entered a New York City bar, announced they were gay, ordered drinks, and waited to be served. I love this, and I think it's got currency for what's happening now where we're having these discussions around religious freedom laws and can you refuse to you know, bake a cake for a gay couple or whatever – and while, okay, the right to have a gourmet cake baked for your wedding is kind of first world problems, I think when we look at it large, writ large, uh, the idea that entire classes of businesses refuse to serve people for being gay. I mean, obviously we talk about the segregation of lunch counters and things by race, and I think most Americans would agree that we don't want that back. There is a portion of people that do, but that's a other set of circumstances 
and people can't imagine that there was a time where you could be refused service for being gay, but it was actually quite common. And the Mattachines, they did a lot of great stuff, and their sister organization, the Mattachines, were only for men, and their sister organization, the Daughters of Bolitis, were only was only for women. Um, they did a lot of sort of public actions in places like bars. Uh, they tended to be sort of middle class, mostly white, um, you know, still sort of that segment that we see in our community. There's a lot of work with like HRC. Uh, and they, they took a lot of heat for that. Um, but something as simple as walking into a bar, announcing that you're gay, and then waiting to be served to see what's going to happen. It may not seem like a revolutionary act, but it is. Um, so I, I want to see if I can find a documentary or something about this event because it sounds fascinating. I would totally go to a sip-in. Not that I want yeah. it to be illegal for me to go order a drink in a bar, but um, it totally will. And you know, something that people talk about a lot is the sort of centrality of bars and queer culture in the U.S. And certainly there's a lot to talk about there. Um, but bars were the main social scene for queer folks in a very different way than they are now, um, even when it was illegal to, where you were not going to be served or it was illegal for people of, who were of the same sex or gender or who were perceived to be of the same sex or gender to dance together in public. That's what started the, the Stonewall riot, was a, a raid of the Stonewall Inn um, because they heard there were gay people in there drinking and dancing and we we widely recognize Stonewall, June 28th, 1969, next year's the 50th anniversary, as the beginning of the LGBT movement, although there were a couple of actions before that, both Compton's Cafeteria Riot and Cooper's Donuts, both which happened in 65 and 66 in California, that were similar, uh, that were reactions to police raid, police action, cracking down on uh, really... We, it's painted as gay people, but really what who they were after were uh, people that we would now either call transgender or some people that wouldn't identify as transgender might call them as cross-dressers. Uh, they were after, it was gender policing, just, just like the bathroom bills are now. Are now. Um, but we definitely see a turn in 1969, um, although there are still, there's still a lot that needs to happen there. Um, the next big one happened before we both were born, although I was born only a few months after that. Do you want to talk about 1973? Oh, so in 1973, homosexuality is no longer declared a mental illness. Oh, my gosh. So after years of study, analysis, and changing cultural attitudes, the American Psychiatric Association's board of directors removed homosexuality from the official list of mental illnesses known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, a move that would that was upheld with a vote by the association's membership. Yes. This is one that a lot of folks uh, younger than me, um, I'm probably the last um, oh, I would, I would say especially straight folks younger than, than me um, are surprised by. When I talk about in my classes that homosexuality and, of course, by extension, bisexuality uh, and any other kind of sexuality that's not heterosexuality uh, were a diagnosable mental illness as late as 1973, it's interesting because most of the queer students in the room go, mm-hmm. And most of the traditionally aged uh, straight students go, what? And we talk about it because the, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that's the corpus of what you can get diagnosed, diagnosed with by a clinician. It's in, um, I think, like the fifth edition now. So that, that's a respected publication. Um, there are still conditions listed in there that are basically like being diagnosed with a mental illness for being gay or, or you know, being queer or being transgender, um, but the, the criteria have changed now. Uh, but yeah, it used to be that you could be 
committed to a mental institution by your family for being queer. It's a big, it's a big incentive to stay the hell in the closet. Um, and we're still uh, ironing out the sort of finer points of the way in which uh, when queer folks seek therapy, um, making sure that you get a clinician who is not among those psychiatric professionals that still think it should be an illness, because you still find people that have diagnosed you if you want, um, especially if you work with people that are into reparative therapy. And there's, there's still a robust discussion happening in the psychological and psychiatric community. But 1973, it came out of the DSM. So not, not that long. Um, I mean, only like 45 years, which to me is not that long because I'm not that old, dang it. <laughs> Eventually, I'm going to have to stop saying that. But um, So in 1987, this is a huge one, Bart Frank becomes the second openly gay member of Congress. Um, which is interesting because I always thought he was the first. Um, but he, after six years in the House of Representatives, the Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, voluntarily came out. Um, he was the first to come out voluntarily, I think, which is why you often I'm looking, I'm looking at a couple of articles where they call him the second openly gay and they don't identify the first, apparently, because that person didn't want to come out. And that, there's a certain love and respect there. Um, Frank is no longer um, in the House. Um, he, he retired, um, but he was a important voice for a long time on the, on the floor of the House. Um, yeah, if you can go back to like C-SPAN archives and, and uh, listen to him talk, it is totally worth your time. Um, and that was a, a big thing in 1987 for somebody who was elected to office to come out while in office and then to be continuously reelected many, many times after that for, you know, two years since in the house. Um, it, it speaks a lot because there's still politicians that are, are nervous about being out of uh, what it says about their electability. It probably helps that Frank was a Democrat from Massachusetts, let's be honest, but yeah. Mm. Um, so, gosh, an hour goes fast. So we got we've got five minutes left, my friend. Uh, what do you think is the? Um, I'm scrolling down through this list and looking, looking at all kinds of stuff. And you had an observation in the green room about um, as you get down to the bottom of this list, you have you have things that are spaced out, like it goes from 87 to 2000 to 2009. Um, and before that, it's like, you know, it's like 10 and 12 years between. And then these, these things just start happening. So you, like, you, you had something really interesting to say about this, like, cluster of events in after, after 2000. Mm. I don't know. I, well, I definitely won't be able to get it, like, verbatim for what I said. But well, I of course not. Mentioned, course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I had mentioned that we – advanced so far during the Obama administration in uh, LGBTQ rights. Uh, like, so, we accomplished so much in, I'm just going to say the eight years that he was president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, like, I know I have friends who are like, I never thought I'd see this happen in my lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Just because it you, because, like you were saying, the huge like gaps between, you know, the advancements in our civil rights. Yeah, it was. You know, I think about um, how it seems like how fast everything happened um, after, really after two thousand, but definitely after two thousand and eight. Um, and, of course, it's always important to know that it's all these small things that were happening on the state and local level that, you know, kind of allowed for the momentum. But, I mean, there's 15 years between the first step towards same-sex legal uh, same-sex marriage legalization, which was in Vermont, uh, where they ha- gave people the right to enter into civil, civil unions. Uh, that happens in April 2000, and it's not till June 2015 that – 
same-sex marriage is declared a constitutional right nationwide, and that's that's 15 years, which is, I mean, quite a gap. But honestly, in 2000, when this was first starting to come on my radar, I never thought it would happen. And even as I watched the state start to legalize on the state level, I never thought I'd see it, even when Obama was elected, because he wasn't sure if he was in favor of marriage equality or not. And um, I, one thing I respect about the man is that he's been very open about the fact that he changed his mind, um, that he wasn't sure, but in, in getting to know White House staffers and seeing people and having them make the legal argument for why they should be able to be married, he was able to take in new information and develop a new opinion, which there are a lot of people in this country that consider that to be a moral failing. <laughs> Uh, the Clintons have said the same thing, and you can say what you want about the Clintons. There's a lot to say about the Clintons. But on this particular issue, Bill Clinton's the one who saw the Defense of Marriage Act. That was the thing that had to be oh, declared unconstitutional for queer folks to get married. And absolutely, he was down with that. He signed down ask, don't tell, too. Uh, but they both, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton, have said that they – evolved on that issue since 1996 that again through knowing white house staffers through having friends through seeing what people went through uh the hardships they went through by not being able to be married that caused them to change their mind and you know there are people who say that they both clinton and obama only did it for election points but i think it's as queer folks get more visible and participate more in sort of everyday life um where people regularly interact interact with queer folks and know more about us and the internet is here, um, people start to think differently about the the role of equality. And I mean, you know, it's a conversation we've been having since at least 1924 in this country. Um, but there's so much that happened just in 2015. Um, the community was acknowledged in the State of the Union address for the first time. Uh, there's a call for the end of conversion therapy. Don't ask, don't tell is repealed, and sexual orientation is added to the military's anti-discrimination policy. Um, and the DOMA gets gets struck down, which ultimately sets up the right to same-sex marriage. And to think that that all happened really between 2013 and 2015, um, it is not that long ago and to think about the fact that uh, these are hard-won games that they you know took close to a century to get and that with the current climate we are looking at a potential rollback um it is it's a it's an interesting and tenuous and distressing time but to see how far we came in such a short time i think is is encouraging i think it says its momentum is at our backs and we are going to continue adding queer history. So we would love if there are moments, especially in queer pagan history, that you would love to send us, or you can amass a list, go with this poll that we're, <laughs> we're doing. Uh, you can send those to us through Facebook at facebook.com slash Love, or you can email us at acts of love and pleasure. Um, well, speaking of history, our hour is history, so before we sign off for the night, is there anything going on? Um, what's happening on your other show? What's coming up for you, Michael Graywell? Oh my gosh, I, I knew that was coming, and I'm trying to think. Uh, so the only thing I can think of that I have coming up, we're still working on trying to get our two um, October shows scheduled, and I'm trying to think. I think I might actually not be able to make one because I'll be traveling. Um, yes. Um, we haven't... We're still working on our lineup for Walking the Unnamed Path, but we will let you know as soon as we have something <laughs> available. Uh, I do know that Stone and Stang is, I believe, this coming weekend. Yes, yes. Hopefully we'll so have somebody lot... be able to come on and give us a wrap-up. Yes. We sh- we'll see about getting that organized. Um, but, yeah, I know a lot of the brothers are going to that. So, you know, I wish I could be there, but just so much going on right now financially I, I just I couldn't do it yeah uh, yeah for, for uh, oh for unlimited money right yeah you know, all kinds of places but I don't know 
What about you, Dr. Susan? Oh, I've got a bunch coming up. Um, I have a class at Hearth Wisdom Store in Arlington happening at 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, October 13th. It is a, a course called Welcome Wealth Prosperity Magic Basics, and you will be introduced to Prosperity Magic Basics, and you will uh, make an anointing oil for a candle, a prosperity bath, and a prosperity sachet to take home. You'll also learn about stones and herbs and other techniques for doing uh, spell work for prosperity, magic, and abundance. Super excited about that. That is $15 in advance, $20 at the door. I'll post the event to our Facebook page and to the Dreaming Priestess Facebook page. Uh, I've got a full moon circle coming up in October. We're in the middle of trying to move the date, so I'll keep you posted on that. Um, I had it scheduled, and then I'm going to be, as I mentioned, at Witch Camp. So I'm trying to get it moved. If I can't get it moved, I will have a guest priestess who will do that. But that will be at, Her- at Horizon Unitarian Universalist Church. Keep an eye out for that. Um, I've got, let's see, what else is coming up? I'm getting ready for November already, actually. I'm going to uh, be vending at Steampunk November, which is out in Mansfield, Texas, from the 9th through the 11th. Not strictly a pagan event, but you, there's some crossover in our communities, and I think it'll be a really good time. <laughs> I've got some online classes that are fixing to launch, and I've got a bunch of new stuff in my Etsy shop, which is dakotawitch.etsy.com. I have a few, a very, very few of the beautiful crystals I brought back from South Dakota in the shop. Get them while they're hot. They are selling fast, uh, and I will be posting my sort of schedule for winter markets and such because it is coming up fast. Also, I'm already planning my June, my January retreat. I just booked a new spot in Oklahoma, and I will be announcing that uh, as soon as I do all the math on it. So it's going to be busy, and we are uh, working on the rest of our shows. Uh, heads up that Samhain, October 31st, is a Wednesday, and we will be doing a rerun that night. But we will be back in two weeks with new fabulous your content keep an eye <laughs> on the facebook page at facebook.com slash all acts love uh, in between times tune in and listen to jason on raise the horns radio he's always doing great stuff there's a lot of fabulous programming happening here at pagans tonight follow us on facebook you can also follow the unnamed path and my personal Facebook page, uh, which is facebook.com slash dreamingpriestess to know what uh, your favorite queer pagan radio hosts are up to. Uh, We're looking forward to hearing from you throughout the month of October for Queer Pagan History and beyond, and we'll look forward to seeing you or, well, you listening to us. I wish I could see you. (laughs) We'll look forward to talking to you in two weeks. Until then, have a magical night. You're listening to Pagans Tonight. Pagans Unite on Pagans Tonight. Many paths, one network. For over five years, we've been the place to connect with the best, brightest, and most trusted voices in the pagan world. Every night is Pagans Tonight. 